remember who we approach this morning, Father. We are very thankful uh, for forgiveness of sins, for the righteousness of Christ, for the many, many blessings that you poured out on us. And I, I guess overall, over all of it is we're thankful for your heart of love, which was not uh, overshadowed by your justice, your holy justice, and your, your perfectly righteous standard. We thank you that you found a way, the only way, by which we sinners can be reconciled back to you, clean and pure and standing, as it were, in the righteousness of Christ, as if we had done all those things. <clears throat> we know full well we don't deserve it, but we thank you for it. Anyway, we thank you so much for your word. I pray that you will open our eyes again this morning as we continue in John. These are going to be some hard words that Jesus is going to be saying uh, for the people who are hearing it. And this hard words for us as well, uh, even as believers, uh, to, to look at uh, where we could have been. And uh, I pray for, uh, well, I do pray for any of us, um, Lord, that, that you, you know all hearts. Yeah. And I pray that, uh, that if there's any here or maybe online that, uh, that needs to hear and be warned about the fact that there are very few actually who are saved, um, that, that we'd be mindful of it and, and that you would do your work by your word. Wash us again in the water, we pray in Jesus' name. <clears throat> you hear this you hear the phrase a lot of times there's two kinds of people right um, <clears throat> and then they'll go on to say something maybe three kinds of people or four kinds of people um, there's two kinds of people in hell weepers and gnashers <clears throat> we're going to look at that today uh, from Luke 13. It pertains to what we're talking about here, and uh, and you'll see what that tie-in is in a little bit, but I just thought I'd throw that out there. I got that from, uh, not that particular way of phrasing it, but got that from, from listening to a message by John recently, and I've been thinking a lot about that, and it actually um, uh, touches on the passage uh, that we're looking at here. Jesus is, um, we're in chapter 8, John, right? So if you have your Bible, turn there. We're going to be starting this morning, uh, well, not starting, we're continuing in uh, John 8, beginning with verse 21. Our, our first section on our notes is 21 through 24. And uh, without belaboring our our review, remember that this is the fall of the year. We just talked about seasons, right? So this is the fall of the year um, as we as we reckon it. Uh, before the spring in which Jesus is crucified. Okay. And uh, so we're in the spring now. Passover actually begins next Sunday, all right, on the Jewish calendar. So also does uh he died. Palm, Sun, Palm Sunday. Yeah. Passover. Well, it says Passover start. Passover begins. Passover is a period of time, right? It's not just one day. Um, but uh, anyway, so there is um, that's that's the spring. This is the fall. 
And chapters 7 through 10 of John all occur during that time period, okay? Last half of chapter 10, uh, there's, a, there's a little break there, but that's Hanukkah, that's December usually in our calendar, mid to mid-December or so. Um, but this is all in the backdrop of the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, we looked at that. We've been through chapter 7 in which John gives us uh, a little bit of what Jesus says, but a lot of the audience reaction back and forth. What John is showing us is that as Jesus is getting near the end of his ministry, there's these sort of three groups of people. There are those who are his disciples. There are those who are his enemies and have, really have been his enemies from the start. Right? He calls them the Jews primarily. They're the, they're the influential leaders of the nation. Okay? The, the, the group he singles out the most, not exclusively, but the most in that larger group called the Jews, there's a subgroup called the Pharisees, right? And they're the ones who really are the point of the spear of opposition against Jesus time and time and time again. Okay? Not all of them. That's important. Okay? But most of them. All right. So we've been through chapter 7. We've looked at that. And then we looked at uh, um, the, the, the woman caught in adultery, right? The first 12 or 11 verses of, of chapter 8. And then Jesus here in chapter 12, or, or sorry, chapter 8, verse 12, okay, starting with verse 12, begins with this statement. And, and I, I struggled a little bit with the timeline. You know, what, when is exactly these things that we're studying in chapter 8, how do they relate to chapter 7 in terms of time? And I, I think that this is probably right at the very end of the feast. Um, it may have even been just before uh, he stands up and says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink, right? The last great day of the feast, remember, the seven days plus the Sabbath, the high Sabbath, right after that, so a total of eight days. No, it doesn't really matter. What, what does matter here is that uh, seven, eight, and nine are all happening very, very close together, right? So chapter eight, I think, kind of backs up and folds over on top of seven in terms of when he's saying this to them. We're going to look at another section today in, in Luke 13, um, which relates to this, which is going to happen a little later after chapter 10 and before the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. Okay, so just to give you a little bit of an idea. The point I'm trying to make is that uh, as we progress through John, and it's true in the other Gospels too, as you read Rick was talking about, you know, he's reading One Perfect Life now, and you can see that in there, too. That's that's brings together all the Gospels, right, in, in sort of one narrative. And you can see that there, too. <clears throat> There's this, this steady march in the Gospels of general rejection of Jesus, okay, so that you have, um, I forgot to mention the third group, You've got his disciples, these people who are on board with Jesus, right? They're his fan base, you might say. You've got his enemies, but then you've got this third group of people, and this seems to be the majority of people, which are kind of not sure which way to go. They're a little confused about him. A lot of them, early in his ministry, he's very popular, right? And we've, we've, we remember uh, chapter 6, where he reached that pinnacle, and that's the one miracle that's in all other than the resurrection, that's the one miracle, well, I should say, this one public miracle Jesus does that is in all four Gospels, is the feeding of 5,000. And I think that's when we reach that pinnacle of popularity and begins to decline so that 
this, the, the general shift, general mood of the populace is shifting toward a negative view from a positive view of Jesus toward a negative view, despite all his miracles. Think about that, right? Despite this man who never met a disease he couldn't cure, right? And he never said, as far as we know, uh, not recorded anywhere, where he turned anybody away, which is interesting too, right? So very generous, very kind, patient person, right? And, uh, and, and, and yet, despite that. Why do you think so? Well, he tells us, right, in chapter 7. He, he says, the world hates me because I... Speak his words, convict the sin. And that's what's going to be happening here in chapter 8. Same he, is true today. That's right, same true today. Um, yeah, we definitely see that, don't we? Um, the crowd, Pete, I'm sorry, the rest yep. of the crowd, you think that's some of the majority crowd that was with what we were talking about in Mark 2? I mean, you know, the house, Peter's house, when he, you know, the paralytic, they lowered him down, you know, there were so many people there. You think that's still some of the people because as I read it, I, I, I saw that there were probably people that, that were believers, some that were skeptics, and some that were onlookers. And the onlookers were the ones going, I don't know, believe us or not. And so I think he had a following of those. Yeah. He also had a followers of those that were that were skeptic, were like, Well, I wanna you know, they're they're with they're not Pharisees and they're not uh, they're not scribes, but they're wanting to catch him in something. You know what I'm saying? Then you had those true believers that loved him. And just was coming for the passionate word that he spoke. I think, and then you also had the other group that was there just because Aunt Sue's hurting that it's sick or whatever, and I'm bringing her just as a paralytic. I, I feel like, and I'm not trying to get by, but I feel like a lot of these people followed him to be to get what they wanted, not what, what he was trying to teach them. See, there was a sick person, and they tried to. Do, we just know the account in that situation in Mark two of the paralytic man, but but I'm sure that there's the crowd, I'm sure there was others. So you think this is part of some of the same crowd? Do we? Yeah. They just keep following keep following Some add, some some take away, and it's just majority of the same. I don't know that he had a big crowd always following him around everywhere. Um, there's even even his own disciples. Remember Peter, for example, was married, right? Yes. So I think there were times in which Peter likely had to go back, you know, to take care of his family. And so on, and the Lord allowed that. In fact, in God's, in, in His providence, this isn't really stated explicitly in Scripture, but as you start to pull together the clues, um, it seems to be, you know, uh, not only Peter, but a lot of the other, number of the other disciples had family and had responsibilities there in, in Capernaum. So Jesus sort of just shifted His center of gravity there, right? Just from a practical standpoint. Now, they did follow Him uh, a lot, but they weren't there like all the time. I, I didn't mean to interject. Yeah, no, that's I was trying right. to get my head wrapped around because I mean we hear a lot about crowds and, and stuff and, and so I was just kind of thinking is this the same multitude or the same crowd? Because you know it feeling about thousand, I mean he had tons of people. And then we know after that that they some of them went away because they didn't believe in how stupid it happened when this man actually <clears throat> performed a big miracle in front of them, but their spiritual eyes were not open at that time. And they, and they and they hear the words yeah. uh, you know, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, that's what's really, really offended. Sure. Right. But the, uh, it is, to me, it's very enlightening of human nature that when we are sick and we come to someone like the Lord for healing, we are very humble and very 
acknowledging of him and stuff like that. But once we feel good and we're, once everything is okay, we want to get back to the old lifestyle and to the old, and we can change around. I mean, you know, we, we're very humble with the Lord when bad things happen, but then when they go away and things are good, we say, never mind, I don't need you now. And we go yeah. and do our several ways. And I hadn't thought about it, but that I'm sure that's true with the Lord. With a lot of people that were serious when they were being healed have now turned around. They don't need him anymore. That's right. That's right. It's a sad thing. It's, and, and it's a sad not only for that, but it's a, sometimes sad in my life. When I everything I need, I kind of become independent. That's right. And you would think everybody who is personally healed by him. Yeah. Yep. You know, would be let a alone, you know, you have a loved one, that's you know, yeah, you're really gonna be grateful. But but you yourself. But that that's the whole point of that the ten lepers, right? Mm -hmm. Only yep. one came back. That's 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 a really poor ratio. Ten percent, you know? Only ten percent. All right. So the point I'm trying to make here with all of this, or I think that that not me, but I think that's being made in the Gospels, particularly John as well, he, he really seems to be making this point very strongly, is that, um, is that, now listen, whether it's active hate against Jesus, and opposition, you know, vocal, clear, outspoken, angry opposition against Jesus, or whether it's just sentimental, passive indifference, you're both going to hell. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Both going to hell. That third group, which seems to be the majority of people, I, I don't think most have been really, really kind of struggling with that. We'll, we'll talk about it. You know, well, maybe we won't and a whole lot, but in the Easter service, uh, we're going to talk. We're going to look at at the, I'm the resurrection and the life, which is a there's a lot going on there. There's a lot more than you realize. Okay, um, it takes studying all of the John, uh, John really to to grab a hold of what's really there. And even then, I don't feel like anyway. Um, but there's there's um, uh, after that miracle, there's a lot of people who are very excited about Jesus. Okay. And uh, I was listening to, I've been listening to John yesterday on, on that whole thing, just kind of getting my mind in it. And, 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 and I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, he, he's, he's really, he, he, he opened up some things there, but I really think that the triumphal entry, which by the way, is next Sunday, right? That's when we celebrate uh, Palm Sunday, right? Um, the triumphal entry, there's, a, there's people there who are very, very excited about, about him. And John, John opens up why that is. He's the only gospel writer that tells us why. He explains why. Because I've wondered about it. Maybe you have too. Where do all these people go just a few days later when the crowd is saying crucify him? Right? Well, there's a, there's a, that's because not everybody thinks the same. right? And you do have a lot of people who you have his enemies, and they're the ones who were really pushing. Okay, Now, remember, too, God is working behind the scenes. right? So God can do a lot of things that don't make sense to us anyway. But but he he uses their natural hatred to to see that Jesus is is crucified and so forth. His followers, I will strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. They're afraid. Peter denies all that. But there's this large group in the middle of people who we see them in John six, right, Dan? They were fans of Jesus for a while until his offensive words, and 
they don't they're not there screaming it wasn't like all israel was there at the cross screaming for him there's only a few people that really <clears throat> were shouting for him to be crucified majority weren't but the majority had just simply gone back to what they were doing you know they had seen the miracles they had heard him teach they'd seen the light and they went back to the darkness of passive indifference and it's sad because there are few who are saved and that's what we see in luke 13. and that's what we see here too although jesus here is speaking to his enemies okay so um let's get into the text 20 21 through 24. Um, which chapter 14. we're in john 8. We're in John 8. Okay. Um, so 21 through 24, we'll just read this here uh, and, and, and comment as we go. Okay. So he said to them, now notice this next word. Maybe your translation is a little different. Again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> one time should be enough, but we as human beings we need to hear it again and again you know and the more times you hear it it starts to sink in john the apostle by the way does that too uh, peter does that uh, paul does that somewhat although paul paul i think assumes his readers are intelligent like paul is more he didn't have to say it as much but anyway john says the same point over and over so here it is again okay but jesus is saying this again now to these Jews, these are his enemies now. I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. All right, now, there on your notes, that's point number one. I struggle with how to break this, this down in an outline, and I decided to, because there's so much sort of back-and-forth narrative here, it's hard to outline this, okay, without breaking it up too much. And so I just went with two two points on our outline you see it down there at the bottom of your notes okay everybody has notes right you don't i have a, i have some spares up here what were you like in class with your teachers <laughs> as a kid you have too much coffee all right um so Hold your place there, and let's turn back. And somebody read for us chapter 7, verses 33 through 36, which is there on your notes. See that in your notes there, right at the end, parentheses, okay? Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I'll go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go to will he go where the our people are scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Who is talking? Well, I know Jesus says that, right? But who does who is he talking to, or who does who responds? Uh to to that there Pharisees says the Jews right so that's that same group right? <clears throat> yes 
Pharisees are sort of the, the most vocal subgroup, if you will, but it can mean, uh, it means others as well. These are the influential leaders of the nation, effectively. They're the ones, ultimately, who John is talking about at the beginning of his gospel in the prologue, where he says, referring to Jesus, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Stop and think about that. We, we kind of gloss over that. But stop and think about this. Who gets to say that? Who gets to speak for the nation? Who gets to be the one to stand up and say, no, we won't have this man reign over us, right? Because there's a lot of different opinions. Like we just talked about that, right? There's some, there are some people who are totally on board with that. We got to the end of, uh, of the feeding of the 5,000 there in chapter 6, and, and John is the one who tells us that, that, that there were a lot of people who were very, very excited by that and wanted to come and make him king by force. So who gets to say the final word on rejecting him? Okay. Well, it's this group, the Jews. Okay. That's who John puts forward as the main mouthpiece for the nation. Right? You have a nation of millions of people and you've got all kind of different opinions about things, right? But but who gets to decide, right? So it's these people. So Jesus is talking to them and he says that here. Um, I, I, it's limited time opportunity, right? I'm with you a little little longer. And when, then I'm going somewhere, you will not find me. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Well, here they're a little confused by that, right? You can see that. It says here that they say that among themselves, so they're discussing this among themselves. And these are bright people. Okay? These are not these are not stupid people. Are they above the Pharisees? I mean, I know the Pharisees were like, you know, they were high orthodox. You know, are these? I mean, I'm just trying Pharisees to get my head right. Huh? Pharisees are part of them. Pharisees okay. are part of them. Right. Okay. <clears throat> Remember that the Pharisees are a, you can think of them like a civic group. Yeah. Okay. So again, Nicodemus is a good example. When we meet him in chapter three, John gives us his resume um, <clears throat> that he was a member of two groups. So he was, Nicodemus is a member of this larger group called the Jews. Okay. But Nicodemus is a member of two subgroups within that larger group. Okay, so when you hear Jews, think large group. Under that are subgroups. Okay, Pharisees, Sanhedrin, the chief priests, known in other gospels as predominantly Sadducees. John doesn't call them Sadducees, but that's who he's talking about. Some other gospels will refer to scribes. Sometimes you'll hear the word lawyers. That's that, that's translate very well. They're not lawyers like we think of lawyers. They're experts in the law. In other words, they were Nicodemus would be one of those because Jesus also adds that he was a teacher of Israel, right? The teacher of Israel. So so in addition to Nicodemus being a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council, and a member of the Pharisees, which is like a civic, religious civic group, he was also um, a teacher, so he would be an expert in the law as well. Widely considered and, and, and held and revered for his views on the Torah, the, the Moses and the prophets. Thank you. Yes. We'll also learn a little bit more. We'll have more to say about the Pharisees, particularly when we get to chapter 9, because 
there's a little background there you need to know. I'll just give you a little hint of it now. And that is that the Pharisees held a lot of power, which is probably why John puts them forward as the most prominent group. Okay? We will meet more of the chief priests. They were a different group uh, later. Okay, they will, they will come together with the Pharisees at the time when they finally make the final decision to put Jesus to death. Okay? Um, but right now it's the Pharisees who mean opposite. And, and the Pharisees had a lot of power, not political power, but religious power in the nation so that they could see to it that you were excommunicated from, from the synagogue. Okay. So it's a little bit today kind of like um, if you're in the Roman Catholic system, you know, that's not so much a political, it used to be, right? They used to hold sway over European kings. They don't so much anymore, but they hold a lot of sway over the religious life of people, which in a, in a lot of respects is just as powerful, if not more so than a political party, right? Or a political government. And the, in the Roman system, this sort of transcends a lot of different governments. Anyway, Pharisees were kind of like that, and we'll, we'll see them. That's particularly important for chapter 9. Right. Um, hope that's helpful. All right. The point is here, though, in chapter 7, what we just read in chapter 8, where he says he's going to say to them again, well, that implies he's already said it once, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's where he said it right. the first time, okay, there in chapter 7. He's already told them this, and they've already had time to think about it, and they're scratching their heads. Over, what, what does he mean? Where is he going? Notice that they, they, it never seems to dawn on them here that he could be speaking about a spiritual reality. Their focus in chapter 7 is, is he getting ready to go to the Greeks? The dysphoria there, which is the Greek word for it, it's called dispersion in our English Bibles. But it, what it means is there were a number of Jews <clears throat> who had moved out into the surrounding Mediterranean area, right? Uh, we meet a lot of them in Acts, right? So, for example, Priscilla and Aquila, you know, there was a time where they had a business. Apparently, they were in tent-making business. They were a pretty wealthy couple. That's how Paul met them, because Paul was in tent-making as well. And, uh, um, but they had, for a period of time, they had a business in Rome, okay? So we can't think of all the Jews as, you know, there's no other Jews anywhere. No, there, there, there are lots of Jewish people around the Mediterranean area, okay? Well, the Jews in Palestine who lived there at the sort of heart of Judaism, okay, referred to those other Jews by that term dysphoria. And what he's, what they're saying here is, well, maybe Jesus intends to go teach, you know, the, the other Jews there. And at the same time, he's going to be mingling among those Greeks and teaching them as well. And that was the Gentile world. Okay. Uh, ironically, it's going to be the Greeks that come to him in chapter 12, which is interesting. Um, where they, they, a very famous saying, sir, we will see, we would see Jesus. Okay? Those are Greeks actually that come at Passover to see Jesus, which is interesting. Um, but that's chapter 7. By the time we get here to chapter 8, go back to chapter 8 now, okay? By the time we go back to chapter 8 in our, our verse, verse 21, they've had some time to think about it, okay? What is their response then in verse 22? Same kind of group of people now 
right? Because it says, verse 22 starts by saying, so the Jews said, right? So it's the same, it's, it's his enemies, okay? The first time they're confused, what does he mean by this? Is he going to go to the dysphoria? Is he going to go teach the Gentiles? What does he mean? But here they had, they've had time to think about it. They've had time to, to kind of negotiate a little bit, right? And again, these are not dumb people. Jesus speaks to them in, a, in ways that, that, that um, challenges their intellect, and they know that, and they've had time to think about it. And now they, they shift the focus a little bit from a physical possibility to something very different. So the Jews said, verse 22 now, Will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, you remember a few, uh, few sessions back, we talked about this, and I gave you a little preview. Does anybody remember what they're really saying here? It sounds pretty innocuous. I mean, suicide's bad. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, he's going to commit suicide. Maybe that's what he means. It's worse than that. Do you remember what they really mean? Is he going to hell? Yeah, going to hell. That's right. And they're not going there because they're, they're not going there. Because they're yeah, <laughs> clearly. We're not going there. Oh, I get it. Okay. Where's the one place Jesus is going that we can't go? Oh, hell. No, that's seriously. That's what they're saying. That's exactly what they're saying. Why? Because <clears throat> they taught <clears throat> kind of similar to the Catholic Church in, in this right. way, and I think maybe some other denominations I don't know. But uh, I believe I'm correct in saying that the Catholics teach that that's one of the, um, I forget what they call it. We would say unpardonable sin, but that's not what we call it. But basically a sin that um, if you, it's kind of like, you know, you're in any works-based system, you know, you, you, got, you got the scoreboard. You know, you get the points for you and the points against you, right? And if, you're, if, you're, if your score looks really good, it looks like you're really headed to heaven, but you kill yourself, you know. There it goes. Too bad for you. Okay, they taught that, and so suicide meant you were going to hell. In their system, okay, doesn't actually mean that scripture doesn't teach that, but that's what they believed. And so clearly, he's going somewhere where they can't go, and that must be hell. Wow. Really? All these miracles, which by your own admission, by your own spokesman back in chapter 3, you said, we know you are of God because no one can do these things unless he be of God, right? And now you're concluding that this one who is from God is going to go to hell? Wow. What would you do if you were Jesus? How would you respond? <sighs> Somebody from God, just... From a God point or a human point? <laughs> Well, from a human point, we want to retaliate. Oh, yes, exactly. Back. That's where I was going. But Peter said he didn't do that. Yeah. I think he, in, in, from, a, from a godly point, um, he, if he didn't keep his mouth shut like he did in front of Pilate and Herod, you know, unless he was asked something. A lot of times, I mean, when we, looking at that point, when we would, we'd have been in his shoes, we'd have been trying to defend ourselves. Whoa, 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 whoa. But he did not because he knew he was right. He knew the cause would be for him. He just—he's not trying to defend himself as a, as a human. He's going to say something as as a, as a God Godhead. But it's, if it was in the form of being human, like Pastor Peter said, he would have the attitude of retaliation. 
Retaliation in, in form of what? Hate, not love. Okay, but how? Would you would you call lightning and thunder down like John and James wanted to that one time? Remember they got uh, mad at that village and trying to call out thunder and lightning? <coughs> says you know, remember what I'm talking about? Okay. But I think with his words he cuts in quick because and I'm not trying to set yeah. any thunder, he says he says you are from you are from below and I'm from above. That's what yeah. he said. See, and he knows and they don't know. And they're still, I think they're still going. What is this guy saying? Here's 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 why I asked that question, okay? As chapter eight from this point forward is unfolding, <coughs> watch carefully at how Jesus masterfully handles this monumental insult. I mean, what they're really saying, okay. The truth of what they're saying is God is going to go to hell because we're not. Right? Here's this, I mean, yes, they don't, I know that they don't believe all of that, but that's really the truth of what they're saying. You're going to put God in hell so that you can go to heaven? You're going to flip things around and justify yourself even at the expense of putting God in hell? Judging him? Now, you see how backwards they are? You see how upside down, how wrong? They could, you couldn't be any more wrong than this, right? You, I would be tempted, and you would probably too, to start opening up, bring out the big Gatling gun, 50 cal, and start, you know, sawing away with your words and just blasting them away, okay? But what's amazing to me is how Jesus, he's, he is the light of the world. He just said that, right? So he's turning the light on. But what he doesn't do is he doesn't turn the light fully on. He starts to bring it up. And he's going to bring it up, and he's going to keep bringing it up as we move through the chapter, more and more and more clear, okay? And and the, the connection, we may not have time today to get to, to Luke 13, but when we're, going to, we're going to jump ahead in time a little bit to the gap between the end of chapter 10 and the start of chapter 11 in Luke 13, where the light comes up even a little bit more, okay? And then if you continue, you know, you study all the Gospels, you read passages like Matthew 23, in which, woe to you, scribe, damn you, scribes and Pharisees, damn you, damn you, says it seven times, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, right? The light is coming up even more, okay? But he doesn't, he's, he's mixed, yes, he's the light of the world, yes, he's got to tell them the truth, but he doesn't open up with a vengeful, a vengeful way of doing it. Does that make sense? And it's a perfect example of what John opens his gospel with when he says that Jesus was full of what? Grace and truth. He mixes the two together perfectly. And we see his grace here in this chapter, even as he is going to eventually get to the point in this chapter right here where he says, no. You're not sons of Abraham. No, you're not sons of God. You are the sons of the devil. Okay? But it is mixed with grace because in verse 24, he's going to say, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins and you go to hell. What a, what a great way to, for, what a great example for us to follow too. Yes, we have to speak the truth. But you know, don't, don't, don't be so willing. And I, I speak to myself on this because I, you know, <clears throat> 
especially when I get all fired up and it's something that I'm really, you know, passionate about and, and have a lot to say, you know, I can, I can really cut with my words and I can say things and be sarcastic to people. And, 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 and that's not what Jesus does. He does tell them the truth, but he does it in a way that gives maximum room for the light to dawn, to dawn and to, to repent and begin to, to understand and turn around because he loves these guys. He doesn't just hate him. He's not seeking vengeance here. Okay. He pours his grace and truth out. And it's a great example of that. Um, all right. So we do have a few minutes. So let's continue. Uh, what a powerful insult verse 22 is, right? Now look at verse 23. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are not. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Now, what is this? This is a very Hebrew way of speaking. And, and again, he, he speaks to them in terms they, they really understand. Uh, it, what he's doing here is, is it's, a, it's a synonymous parallel. Okay, So when he says there, you are from below, it means the same thing as you are of this world. Okay. And then when he says, I am from above, it's the same thing as I am not of this world, right? So, which is interesting because that's only the two choices you have, right? You're either from God or, or on your way to God, or you're with the world on your way to judgment. And he's already said at the beginning of this whole thing, right, in chapter 7, like we just said a minute ago, it's probably worth, worth me rereading again. His brothers wanted to go up to the feast, and, and Jesus says, uh, the world cannot hate you, verse 7, 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that his works are evil, right? He is, he is testifying to them that their works are evil. They hate him for it. Anyone who is not of this world hears his voice. He's going to talk about this in chapter 10, right? And my sheep hear my voice. You don't, you don't hear my voice. You don't really recognize this as truth because you're not my sheep, because you're spiritually blind, right? You're still in the world. And even as I'm going to speak the truth to you in the coming verses, it's not going to, it's not going to have the impact that it should have. But where does he say he's from? What he does here is he starts, he doesn't say, no, how dare you? That's blasphemy. No, he just simply says, I'm from above. I just said I'm going back there. Okay. But you're of this world. You're of this world. And then look at verse 24. Here's where that grace is mixed. And I told you, um, I told you that you would die in your sins. Period. Right? That's it. That's the end of verse 24. Is there more? What's the rest of it say? Unless you believe. Unless. There's condition there, right? Listen, guys. You're born to this world. You're of this world system. You, you, you have um, inherited and enhanced this religious system now watch this because this is really interesting this is going to unfold 
um, it, it, particularly in chapter 12, where Jesus is going to say that, that now is the judgment of this world, and now the prince of this, or the ruler of this world is to be condemned. We get there. Uh, we're there in the other Bible study. And I, I just, man, I've just been there like two weeks just unpacking all of what that means. It's amazing. What he's, what's happening is Satan is in charge of this religious system. This is his doing. And Jesus is coming to judge him, to cast him out, to be lifted up, and to draw many people like a, like a fisherman drawing a, a net, a cast, we, we call it a dragnet. It means the same thing. You can, when it says the father draws him, it means the father drags him, okay? It's like the father and son are in the fishing business together, pulling in a bunch of people out of this system that Satan has created. And, and what he's telling them here is, look, he's beginning to turn the light on. He's beginning to say, you guys think that you're on board with God when in reality you're in league with Satan. You have been deceived by him. You don't even know it. And you're going to die in your sins unless you believe in me and you follow me as the light of the world out of darkness into light. Okay? Very, very powerful words. But it's amazing to me the grace and the truth that's mixed together in that, right? He doesn't blast them for, I mean, that is a huge insult that they give him. Oh, you <laughs> you must be going to commit suicide, you know, the unpardonable sin and go to hell because we're clearly not going there. And Jesus is like, I don't know how wrong you are. Okay. Any quick thoughts? I wonder that he died. Mm. It's like us fighting over our kids. Can you say, don't do that? The end is not good. It's not good. You did that such a conflicted anyway. You know what I mean? Can you just, just cry over them because you know what they're going to get into when they're in the world? This is the one that Jesus was crying over the time. Everybody talks to there's a lot of powerful emotions. Um, just again, like I said, chapter 11, like the raising of Lazarus, there's a lot of powerful emotions there that Jesus displays. In fact, John said, I was listening to it, I thought it was a good point. He says, other than the emotional display in the garden, that's probably the most, that's the second most powerful scene of Jesus' emotional display as a man in chapter 11, just as he's about to raise Lazarus. And the reason for that, a big part of the reason for it, uh, one of the words there, you could be translated as to snort. He snorted at them. He was frustrated with their lack of belief, and he weeps over that. Yeah, they're weeping because Lazarus is dead. And they say, oh, look how he loved him. When in reality, here's Jesus weeping over them because he loves them. Father, it's amazing to see your heart of love expressed through our Savior. I think of what Paul says that we see the glory of the Father in the face of Jesus. The more we look at him, the more we behold him, the more we see his character and his patience, his grace and truth mixed together. Um, he, he pulls no punches. He definitely tells these guys, and he tells us today as well, the real truth of things. And, boy, it's a hard reality. It's hard. It's really hard even for us who, who believe the, the word of God and where we, you know, we're on the other side of grace and as it were looking at through a window at hell it's hard to even talk about it and yet that's where these guys are headed 
the, the regret and in utter darkness, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, the two kinds of people, those who hate him and gnash their teeth and those who uh, just simply through passive neglect and apathy end up there and spend eternity weeping because of the lost opportunity. And uh, yet it's hard to talk about. Um, and I appreciate what Debbie said there, reminding us that, that you're not saying these things to them or to us through clenched teeth with, with rage in your voice and happy that these people are on their way to hell. No, you say it through tears, but you say it nonetheless. You say it in grace, turning the light on more and more and, and trying to, 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 to draw them and to woo them to the light. Help us to follow you in that example. Pray your blessing on the rest of this, this day in service in Jesus' name.